church, you are very blessed with the men that God has placed over you to lead you. Faithful men are still standing in this pulpit. And I understand the weight of the task of being here, but let me be clear, the weight of this task is not because faithful men have stood here. The weight of the task is because anytime the people of God gather in the place of God to hear from God, it is a weighty matter. And something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. And so I'm encouraged and I'm thankful and I'm blessed to be here to open the Word of God with you on this of all days on Good Friday. And it's a good day, is it not? It's a hard day, is it not? Because we can't forget that while we got salvation, Jesus took death. And He took our sin. And there was anguish and sorrow in the heart of our Savior. But it is good to be here with you. If you have your Bibles with you, I challenge you to open them to Matthew chapter 26. And the title of this evening's sermon is going to be A Tale of Two Cups. A tale of two cups. We will be reading from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. And when you have arrived, if you will please stand, if you are able, out of reverence for the Word of God. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, and we will read through verse 46. And Matthew records this for us. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with Me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went and prayed for the third time, saying the same words. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word of truth. We thank You that You are a God who has not for a moment remained silent with us, but You speak through the majestic Word. And God, I pray that this evening as we gather and focus our hearts and our minds on the cross of Your Son, that we would marvel at this wondrous love. 
that we would be in awe of the fact that you would save the most wretched of people like us. And I pray that your glory will be ever before us. And it is in the matchless name of Jesus that I pray. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. If I'm going to be honest with you, as I was growing up as a young Christian in the faith, Good Friday was always a difficult day for me. It was a difficult day for me, not so much in what was going on. I understood the theology behind it. I understood the fact that that Jesus came and lived the life that I should have lived. and, And on this day that we recognize he died the death that I deserve to die. And three days later, he rose from the grave. I, I understand that, but what troubled me as, as, as a younger Christian is that I didn't quite know how to approach this in terms of my emotions. How do I approach the cross of Christ? Because when you think about it, Good Friday should stir up within us different responses. Because on one hand, We rejoice in the cross of Christ as a means of salvation. Because without the death of Jesus, without the shedding of blood, we are trapped in our sins for all of eternity. Scripture makes it very clear in Hebrews chapter 9, starting in verse 18, the author recounts, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the peoples, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded to you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, everything is purified with blood. And we know this. And without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of what? Sin. We've seen this all throughout Scripture. Blood atones for sin. We saw it in Genesis chapter 3. It didn't take long for us to see that blood will cover sin because when Adam and Eve fell, they felt that they were naked and they felt ashamed. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and they tried to cover their sin. If that is not work, salvation. And what does God do? He says, no, 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 no. That won't be sufficient. And for the first time, Adam and Eve saw death as God wrapped them in the blood-soaked carcass of an animal, and he said, this is what it will take to atone for your sin. We saw it with Cain and Abel. Cain brought a sacrifice to God that was of the ground, that was fruits and and, and plants, and, and Abel brought this spotless sheep. Well, God demands blood, and Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. We saw it in the Passover when the angel of death was coming and Moses said to the people, listen, take the blood of a spotless lamb and you sprinkle that on your doorpost. You cover the top and the sides and you sprinkle it with blood, not oil, not water, not milk, not honey, not ashes from the incense of your praise. You cover it with blood and death will pass you by. The author of Hebrews goes on and reminds us that indeed Jesus Christ shed his blood once as the payment for sins. And we rejoice in this. Salvation has been won. It is 
finished. We rejoice in the new covenant of His blood of which we are freely invited to drink. But on the other hand, so we rejoice in this great, we, we, we rejoice in the cross of Christ as a means of salvation. But on the other hand, there must be a great sense of mourning. Because our sin causes death. It was for the glory of God and the payment of our sin that Jesus hung on a cross and died. And remember that Paul tells us in Galatians 3 as he echoes the words of Deuteronomy 21, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the mirror imprint of God Himself became a curse for us. It was no light sacrifice that atoned for sins. It was the creator of this world, the sustainer of life by the word of His power, who willingly gave up His life to redeem us. There has to be an appropriate level of mourning. And so I struggled as a young Christian to find this sense of balance between this joy that I feel in my salvation, but the reality that my sin caused this. My sin hung him there. It was my sin that nailed him there until it was accomplished. And so my hope this evening as we walk through this text of Scripture Recounting Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we will be reminded of the incredible work that Christ accomplished on behalf of the Father. We will rejoice in the good that it provides for all of those who believe. And so our story begins in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I know this might not be the first text you would have thought of for a Good Friday service, but bear with me as we work through it. But we begin in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed. And make no mistake, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen. He wasn't shocked. He wasn't caught off guard. This is still the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus knew everything that was before Him. So much so that Matthew reminds us that Jesus Christ began to be sorrowful and troubled. That gives me a little bit of evidence that it's okay to mourn a bit over the cross of Christ. Because Jesus Himself was sorrowful and troubled. But make no mistake about this either. Jesus was not sorrowful and troubled at the physical torture and death that awaited Him. Oh no. He was sorrowful and troubled because He knew the cup that was set before Him. He knew what was in that cup. One pastor noted this this beautiful truth. He says it wasn't the fact of death that frightened Jesus because Jesus wasn't afraid to die. It was not the shame of His death. It wasn't the mocking and the beating and the crown of thorns. It wasn't the spitting and the insults that went into the precious, pure ears of God's only Son. It was not those things at all because we know that the greatest shame for Jesus was becoming a man in the first place. And it wasn't the pain of His death. 
how many times this author records, have you heard messages about the cross that emphasize the physical pain of His death? But Jesus, struggling here in His humanity, was not saying, God, I can't take the physical pain. It was the cup that was before Him. He was so troubled that Luke, when he tells us this story, says that in in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and the sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Science has proved this. This is a medical phenomenon where a body is under such immense turmoil that the capillaries burst in the body, dripping blood. You know why you don't see it much? Because no one has ever carried that weight like Jesus. Jesus knew what was before him and he did not make light of the cup that he was about to drink. He did not make light of what would take place on Calvary's hill. And here is my question. Do you? Do you make light of what was done for your soul? On Calvary's hill. I'll be honest with you, church. I'm not attempting to be a holier-than-thou type pastor. New breed will attest to you. I wouldn't fool them anyway. I have to daily ask myself, has the cross of Christ merely become a talking point for you, Michael? Is it merely another song we sing? Or is the weight of the cross ever before us shaping and molding our affections and creating a deeper dependence on God and God alone. And I can tell you this, that for me personally, church, the greatest threat for me to diminish the majesty of the cross is when I see my sin as small. I don't know, church, I just struggle to think that sin doesn't matter that much to God. And we've done it. Let, let's be honest, we've done it. We wouldn't be here on a Good Friday because a Good Friday wouldn't be necessary if we hadn't. But we have played this game of diminishing the weight of sin. Well, Pastor, it was just a little white lie. Pastor, it was just one hit. Pastor, I only looked at him or her one time. I have a hard time, church, looking to a tortured-to-death Jesus on a cross and saying that my sin does not matter. It is weighty. Do we understand the depths of what was won on Calvary? But at least Jesus had his disciples with him, right? He might have been in great trouble. But at least he had those faithful 11. We know that one had gone. He was up to something. But at least he had these faithful men. Well, three times. The disciples were found neglecting the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in a moment of his greatest pain. Jesus prays and it says in verse 40 that he comes back to his disciples who he has charged with praying alongside of him. And it says, he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. Then in verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. Clearly, they were still sleeping. But in this moment, the disciples validated their need and our need for Jesus to atone for sins. They proved the reality that the Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is so weak. I don't know, I've looked at this text, and it's really easy for me to jump down the throat of these disciples. Peter, you're a fool. You're with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You can't stay awake for five minutes. You can't stay awake for one hour. I can make it through some reality TV shows with my wife for an hour. It's so easy to jump down the disciples' throat. But I caution you, I caution me to not pass judgment so quickly. Because if these men are not us, Oh, how quickly we fall prey to the temptation of this world. Even with something as simple as falling asleep when we ought to pray, with something as simple as sitting under the Word of God when it is being taught. Now, I'm not going to speak for you, but I've been preaching now for a few years. And I'm sorry, pastors, I'm going to tell them the secret. Not only can you guys see us, we can see you too. Trust me, we know that the disciples are some of y'all. We've seen it with our own eyes. So we can't look down at these men and say, how dare you sleep when you ought to be in prayer and in the Word. I'm going to videotape y'all on Sunday. Probably not this one. We'll be a little hype. We know what's coming. Now while we jest... It goes much deeper than that. Because how quickly we will forsake the spouse of our youth for a computer screen. And how quickly we will end our marriages and shatter the picture of God's love for the church for our ease and our comfort. How quickly we will slander and gossip because we don't see somebody else as worthy enough of a kind word from our lips. How quickly we neglect the treasure of our communication with God Almighty because the bachelor's coming on. And how quickly we will play the whore and pursue lovers, other lovers, when the greatest love in all of creation is standing with open arms. How dare we judge these men for they are us. And their sins needed to be atoned for. And brothers and sisters, we stand here as a people confessing our sins need to be atoned for. The disciples are not different from us. They are us, down to the most finite detail. 
But in this moment, Jesus is brought face to face once again with the reality that mankind is wretchedly sinful. And notice this, I believe even in Jesus' gentle dealing with the disciples, Jesus shows his great love for the most wretched of people. Because Jesus should have slapped those boys across the mouth. And yet what does he do? He teaches them. Be cautious. Be awake. Temptation is ever-present. It's always lurking, and the spirit might be willing, but my disciples, the flesh is weak, and he teaches them. And in this moment, if we do not see the loving heart of a Savior, but we must be careful to note this, and I want to make sure this is crystal clear tonight. If you've got questions, see me after. But it was not his love for man that drove him forward to Calvary. And it was not his love for man that drove him to drink that cup. Because look again at what Jesus prays. Look at verse 39. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then again, look at verse 42. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus prays, Father, if possible, please take this cup from me. That is not a doubting prayer. That is not a sinful prayer. That is a faithful prayer of Jesus in His humanity saying, Father, if there is any other way, but know this, God, your will be done. Jesus knows that this is a cup that he and he alone can drink if mankind is to be saved. See, the disciples thought that they could drink it. We saw that in Matthew 20. You remember that story? It says that the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of James and John, came to Jesus and and she had a question for Jesus. And Jesus says, what can I do for you? And she said, I want you to permit my two sons, one to sit at your right hand and one to sit at your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you ask. And Jesus says, can they drink the cup that I am to drink? Oh, we know James and John didn't get it quite yet because they said, oh, we can drink it. But you know what Jesus' response is? You will drink of my cup, but you can't drink of that cup. That one's reserved for me. And I can't let you sit at my right and left hand anyway because that's the Father's decision. Jesus knows that this is a cup, that if it will be drank for mankind, it can be drunk by one person and one person alone. Jesus. He knew what he would endure on on behalf of the people by drinking that cup. And Jesus prays for it to be removed. And again, notice verse 39, not as I will, but your will. Verse 42, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And note what is not in the text, church. Note what isn't there. At no point does Jesus say, Father, if if you will, let this cup pass. But if not, remind me that I really love these people. I really care about them. God, motivate me with that. That never crosses Jesus' mind for a moment. 
No, Jesus is willing to drink the cup and what sustains him is not his love for man, but rather his love for God. His unwavering pursuit of the will and glory of the Father. Oh, he will drink the cup for that. But if it depended on you and me, he would have knocked it off the table. But for the glory of God, he will drink that cup. All throughout Scripture, church, all throughout Scripture, we see the faithful motivated by one thing and one thing alone. Do you know what it is? The glory of God. Noah stood against the slander of every person in all of the earth outside of his family for the glory of God. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar, a son of promise, mind you, for the sake of the glory of God. Elijah called down flames from Mount Carmel to protect and defend the name and the glory of God Almighty. David stood against a giant, not really knowing if God would show up, but willing to risk life and limb. Why? Because God's glory was being insulted. And John the Baptist was a man alone in the wilderness declaring, prepare the way of the Lord for the glory of God and Jesus in this moment, as he gazed into that cup, oh, he will drink if the Father wills. Because the glory of God is at stake. And brothers and sisters, we too, if we are ever to be reckoned as faithful in this life, must live and be motivated by one thing and one thing alone. The glory of God. It's crazy to me when you think through all the pictures that we have when people caught a glimpse of God. They never seem to mention humanity first. What filled the temple in Isaiah 6 was not the people, it was the glory of God. What the angels declare in Revelation 4 and 5 is not, look at all the beautiful people, it's the glory of God. And for the faithful, that must ever be before them. You cannot love the lost because the lost is worthy. You'll stop loving them, but we'll love them for the glory of God. You will never love your spouse because they are always worthy of it. But you can for the glory of God. You will never love your church, whether it's forest or new breed. And the broken, messed up people that make it up. Because they are worthy. No, you will only love them for the glory of God. And Jesus' first thought on his way to Calvary, and I am completely fine with this, was not me. I don't think I was on the tip of his tongue in the forefront of his mind. But I believe the glory of God was. It was always about the glory of God. And we, church, we have to be okay with this. This can be a hard pill to swallow, but we have to be okay with the reality that God cares so much more about his own glory than he does us. Because if not, we are committing the very stinking sin that Adam and Eve committed in the Garden of Eden when they thought they were on par with holy of holies. And they said, my glory can match yours, God. How dare you tell me what to do? No, 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 church. God cares so much more about His glory than He does us, and He is right to do so, and we dare not forget it. 
So Jesus, in spite of his sorrow, in spite of his anguish at this cup that is before him, he is willing to drink because he cares more for the glory of God than he does his own comfort and ease. He will drink this cup. This leads us to a very, very important question that we have to answer. What was in the cup? What was in the cup that had Jesus so tore up? What was set before the very Son of God who upholds the world by the very word of His power to cause Him so much anguish and sorrow that He sweat blood? Let me read to you what a faithful pastor wrote in answer to this question, and I think it will be very helpful for us. He says, this is what was in the cup. I believe Jesus saw himself being made sin, and he felt repulsion. Because he was the spotless, pure Lamb of God. He had never known sin. To have Almighty God place upon him on that cross all the sin of the world was more than he could bear in his absolute purity and righteousness. And as he looked into that cup, he saw himself being made the object of God's wrath. Jesus, who had a pure and righteous, unified relationship with his Father that we cannot ever comprehend, wanted to turn away from what he was about to become. Just as certainly as he knew that his Father would have to forsake him in that moment. In the cup, Jesus saw the crushing reality of separation from his Father. About to be made the object of God's wrath, he felt the coming rejection. And he adds, he wouldn't have been human if he hadn't asked about the unavoidability of that cup. What Jesus knew was before him was the immense weight of bearing every sin, past, present, and future, and being made a curse for those the Father longed to save. Jesus also knew that without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sins. And it was the Father's good pleasure to save But make no mistake, God's holiness demands that his justice be satisfied. So here we find Jesus, the innocent one, willing to drink the cup of God's eternal wrath on behalf of us for the glory of God. And so he drank. He drank the fury of God's wrath on a hill called Calvary so God's justice would be satisfied and you and I might declare we are free. And please, church, oh please, never lose sight of the weight of this reality. There is a narrative, and it's called the crucifixion narrative. It's written by a man named Rick Gamachi. I encourage it to you. I'm not going to read it all to you tonight. It's quite long. It has become somewhat of a family tradition in my home to read this on Good Friday because it paints in the most sobering of ways a picture of what Jesus endured from Gethsemane to his final breath. And it is humbling and heartbreaking and worshipful and it is magnificent. But there's a part of it that I want to share with you tonight. 
and what it reveals to us is what it must have been like as best as humanity can imagine it for Jesus to bear the weight of all of our sin. It's easy to think of sin when it's abstract, but what if we started listing those sins He bore? And so I want to share a portion of this with you, and and I'm going to pick up in this narrative to the point of where Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's already struggling for breath. He's already struggling for life. And this part of the narrative reads like this, and bear with me, it typically gets me. That Jesus is startled by a foul odor. And it isn't the stench of open wounds, it's something else. And it crawls inside of Him. And He looks up to His Father. And His Father looks back. But Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. And He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside, and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. And the Father speaks to Jesus. Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heap scorn on my great glory? You are a self-sufficient and you are self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up with selfish ambitions. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out at the one who created you. Jesus, you are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous slanderer and a gossip. You are a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality immorality and you make pornography you fill your mind with vulgarity you exchange my truth for a lie and you worship the creature instead of the creator and so you are given up jesus to your homosexual passions dressing immodestly and lusting after what is forbidden jesus you with all of your heart you love perverse pleasure You hate your brother and murder him with the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor. You deal slaves and ignore the needy. Jesus, you persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you are filled with dead man's bones. You a hypocrite, Jesus. You are lukewarm and easily enticed by this world. You covet and you can't have, so you murder. You are filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin, and you are too proud to even call it sin. You are never slow to speak, Jesus. You have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You are a false prophet, Jesus, leading people astray. You mock your parents. You have no self-control. You are a betrayer who stirs up divisions and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward, Jesus, and you do not trust me. You blaspheme against my name. You are an unsubmissive wife. You are a lazy, disengaged husband. You file for divorce and crush the parable of my love for the church. Jesus, you're a pimp and a drug dealer. You practice divination and worship demons. And the list of your sins goes on and on and on. And Jesus, I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. 
He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with His white-hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. And the Father can no longer look at His beloved Son his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. And he looks away. And Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As I think of what Jesus bore for me on the cross, I have nothing else to say but to simply echo the words of one hymn writer, why should I gain from his reward. I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And Jesus drank the cup of God's omnipotent hatred and anger so I would not have to. And what is so astonishing, church, what is so amazing is this. He offers me another cup instead. You see, as Jesus emptied one cup, the blood of his sacrifice filled another for us. And Jesus himself, he spoke of this very cup at the supper he had right before he went to the garden. You don't even got to change your page. Look at verse 27 of chapter 26. Matthew 26, verse 27. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus bore our judgment on Calvary's tree, we can come and drink deep of the cup of his blood, of the covenant and find that indeed though our sins be like scarlet they will be washed white as snow and I would be unfaithful if I did not tell you this and I want you to hear this church at the end of this life every one of us will drink of one of two cups we will either have to bear the cup of God's righteous unending fury and wrath and anger because his justice has to be satisfied or, oh, or, through faith and repentance, through a deep dependence on the cross of Christ, we can drink of the cup of Jesus' sacrifice, knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that he drank the other cup for us. And church, can you imagine for the disciples in this moment, we know how the story ends. They didn't. They were likely terrified as they gazed on the face of this man that they loved so much. I can't imagine what was going through their minds as he breathed his last breath and declared, it is finished. Oh, but church, if we were given one opportunity to say one thing to them, 
we would scream through the corridors of time, hold on, Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love. Oh, we thank you so much for the cross of Christ. God, what wondrous love is this? That you would sacrifice your son for us. God, I pray that the cross of Christ will not be merely a talking point for us, but it will be our heart's treasure. That your glory will be ever before us, and we will not for a moment make light of our sin, that we would see our sin in its proper place, but even more than that, God, we would see your grace as greater. Because while our sin is mighty, oh, it is no match for the blood. Give us grace to love you well. And God, we praise you that the story is not over. That it did not end with his death on the cross. And we praise you that you are a God that just so happens to be in the business of raising folks from the dead. We love you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.